Okay. Um, now, in a moment, we're going to go to Dodd, but, but, but we're going to make a little bit of a shift here. But um, I'm going to give you one more objection. I'll call this, we're, we're starting off really uh, a, a new uh, stage here. But um, we're going to make, uh, if, you, if you want to keep Roman numerals, I, I'm going to give you Roman numeral sections that I'll be dealing with. And th this, this Roman numeral one for this session would be um, further, uh, we'll say a further objection to contextual use of Old Testament, a further objection to contextual use of the Old Testament. And that objection is this. Um, when you proceed from quotations to allusions, and again, in uh, Nesalalan, if someone very kindly brought in the margin, you'll see allusions. And um, yeah, you see the, uh, see this? Some are references just to New Testament parallels, but some are Old Testament allusions that are listed here. And um, uh, like, uh, let's see, uh, here's one, Numbers 21, 3, uh, for example. So uh, they contend that uh, when, when you have Old Testament references in the margin, they're illusions. Now, sometimes they are. And I'd say about, and, and, and my, my practice with Nesalalan, probably, you know, 80%, 70% are pretty good, okay? And, um, but some would say, you know, these are illusions. Yeah, yeah, you know, the author really wasn't intending the reader to go back to the Old Testament. These are just in passing. And uh, I don't think so. Uh, first of all, how do you recognize an illusion? Well, some people are very minimalistic about illusions. Um, they, they believe you almost have to have so much wording to make it clearly that it's referring to the Old Testament, but it's almost not an illusion. But um, uh, I think what you need for an illusion is unique, and what, we'll talk more about this, but unique word combinations uh, that can only be found in the New Testament text that you're uh, looking at and, and Old Testament text, so unique word combinations. And we'll look, uh, we'll talk more about this, but um, then if you find that and the theme is the same in the old as it is in the new, then I think we can say it's a probability. If, 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 this, if this unique combination is only in these two places only. Now that's just observation. We haven't interpreted yet. First step to interpretation is Paul is intending that as an illusion. So just observation to see the parallel. But then, so what difference does it make? My wife always says, I'll sometimes find an illusion that I think no one's seen before. So, so what difference does that make? Mm -hmm. Oh, I need to interpret it now. Okay. Um, and, and then apply it to life. But um, so. We can say if the if if the combination and the theme are unique enough that Paul has intended this. Now, number three, if Paul has intended it, then 
we should interpret it. That's my, that, 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 that's, now, some will say, well, this is just Paul for himself. Well, again, all things are possible. But not, uh, not all things are probable. I think it's, yeah, possibly Paul's just doing all this for his, his own enrichment, maybe. But I, I, I don't think that's why he's writing. Okay. He's writing to communicate. In fact, there's so many more illusions. If you're missing illusions in your teaching and preaching, you're not dealing with the margins here. There are many, many, many more illusions in the New Testament than there are quotations. And you're missing a huge segment of the Old Testament if you're not paying attention to illusions. And so you should interpret them the same way you do quotations. Now, why does Paul, or why does John? I mean, for example, there are probably only at most, and this is debated, but at most two quotations in the book of Revelation. Two. And yet Revelation has more Old Testament in it than any other book. You're not going to interpret Revelation rightly unless you're paying attention to the illusions. And that's true in Paul as well. For example, I had a student. Uh, he wrote uh, Echoes of Scripture in Paul's letter to the Colossians. There's no quotation in Colossians. No quotations. And, uh, but he showed there were probable illusions. We can classify them as highly probable, semi-probable, and possible. We can call the possible echoes, maybe, okay? But if it can be shown that the word combinations are unique enough only in those two passages, then I think we can say there's intention to elude and therefore to interpret. And so, um, and I think that if you really are aware of this and you're teaching and preaching, you're going to really preach redemptive historically. You're not going to just be talking about Colossians in and of itself. Those illusions are going to make you go to the Old Testament in the way Paul's directing you to the Old Testament to redemptive historically enrich your text. That's biblical theological preaching at that point, though it's still exegetical, if you will. So um, now it may be that your word combination, maybe it's shared in four or five other texts in the Old Testament and this lone New Testament text. Well, it may be that there's an allusion to those as a group because they have the same common theme. That's possible. So, you know, really, uh, there, there are levels of, um, of illusion. And it's possible, you know, some say, oh, you got to have two or three words. It's possible you can have one word if it's unique enough. So, um, now, Roman numeral two, the contribution of C.H. Dodd, the contribution of C.H. Dodd. And this is what I've, uh, I've been talking about Dodd. So now, um, Let's address him head on a, a substantial and often neglected ar argument uh, against the view that the New Testament uses the Old Testament non-contextually is Dodd's classic work according to the scriptures. This is one of the best books showing the New Testament writers did pay attention to Old Testament contextual meanings. We're not just ripping uh, Old Testament texts out of their context. And, and, and grabbing uh, the text according to their own gusto. Now, here's what Dodd observed in his book, that throughout the New Testament, there are numerous and scattered quotes. Okay, now, we're dealing more with quotations now, okay? There are numerous and scattered quotations to uh, a lot 
of different texts. But what he discovered is those texts tended to be grouped together in certain contexts. Um, so that let's say there might be allusions, uh, we'll include allusions to, he includes some of those, but uh, uh, say Isaiah 54 to 66, um, or uh, Genesis uh, 12 to 22, uh, Daniel 7 through 12, Genesis 1 to 3. So he, the single verses uh, would be found throughout the New Testament writings. They were all different, but they were from those same context. Okay. Let me mention those contexts again. Isaiah 40 to 66, Daniel 7 through 12, Genesis 12 to 22, Genesis 1 to 3, Deuteronomy 28 to 32, and probably more. But so you have these single verses. Yeah, they're different, but they're from the same context. And so he said, what this means is, thanks, that when a verse is quoted from that context, that the New Testament writer really is including, it's, it's, it's like just the tip of the iceberg in the writer's mind that he has in mind that broader context. In other words, New Testament writers had in mind these segments that they would quote from, and uh, which shows they had in mind the segment, which means they had in mind the context. Uh, and so he, he concluded then that these writers were aware of broad Old Testament context and did not focus on verses independently of those contexts, ripping them out. They didn't do that. Single verses and phrases were merely signposts to the overall context from which they were he was from they were quoting. And furthermore, he says this is unique in the day. Now it was his view that Jewish interpretation was a little bit wild hermeneutically. And so he said this contextual use is um, unusual. Now I've already qualified that by saying, well, I'm not sure it's so unusual because there was some good Jewish contextual interpretation. But nevertheless, uh, he knows that they were contextual. He went on to assert that since this uh, interpretative phenomenon occurred in the earliest parts of the New Testament traditions, uh, and since innovations like this uh, are not usually created by committees, he said, you know, this probably has the mark of just one person who taught the apostles this. And he, he concludes that he believes Jesus taught the apostles to interpret consistently contextually, which I would agree with him that Judaism was not consistently contextual, even though there was some contextual interpretation. So he says, who, who taught them this unique hermeneutical consistent contextual interpretation? He claims it wasn't some ecclesiastical committee, that it was Christ. Um, so uh, why did the New Testament writers quote from different verses from the same Old Testament context? Because these contexts were taught then as important by Christ. So um, now some disagree with Don, uh, New Testament scholars. I mean, if you go to lectures at Cambridge or Oxford or anywhere else, the universities in England where they, they have uh, New Testament professors, 
many of them, if not most, will think that New Testament writers do interpret uh, non-contextually. A lot of them disagree with God, but a lot of agree with God's work uh, about this contextual interpretation. And I think it needs to be taken into consideration, too, that there are varying degrees of contextual awareness. A New Testament writer might want to just pull an aspect from an Old Testament context and not everything from that context. He might want to pull a secondary or tertiary meaning and not the primary meaning, maybe. It's possible, depending on his intention, but he's not creating new meaning. So we might say there are semi-contextual uses that fall between these uh, uh, poles of contextual and non-contextual. In fact, uh, there's a word, uh, I think it's called um, the use of the Old Testament. No, 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 sorry. Uh, the use of the gospel traditions in the Old Testament by a guy named Voss, not the well-known Gerhardus Voss. This guy was a professor at Calvin College. But in that book called uh, the synoptic traditions of the apocalypse before he starts talking about the synoptic uh, uh, passages used in the apocalypse he starts talking about old and new and goes through old and new and argues that old that, that john uses the old testament and the new not in line with its original meaning then he moves to say well he uses the sayings of jesus not in line with the meaning of Jesus. That's why he starts with the Old Testament. So I, I think he's I think he's wrong. And uh, but he's right sometimes because you'll find not just in Revelation, you will find sometimes even a quotation, you know, or it may be an illusion. And the New Testament writer is using it diametrically opposite to the original meaning of the Old Testament. I, th th this happens and more than once. So what do we make of that? Well, um, let me give you one, one example in, in Galatians chapter two, chapter three, where Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, 23. Galatians 3, 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Someone say, there's beautiful scripture twisting there. You take the most heinous penalty for a crime, death or a rape, et cetera. They hung them on a tree. That, that was uh, what you did to the most heinous criminal. You're applying that to the Messiah, the most honored person ever expected in, in, uh, in Jewish thought. Well, what could be more non-contextual than that? Well, thank the Lord. I would call this not opposite to the meaning. I would call this an ironic use of the Old Testament. Irony is a very proper way to express meaning literarily and in speech. For example, if somebody saw me playing tennis and, and you were in those, you know, somewhat of a crowd and you were around them and I said, isn't Beal a good tennis player? You would laugh because I'm horrible. I either hit it in the net or over the backstop. I just, I'm terrible. That would be an ironic statement. Maybe the person is rude and they're mocking me. 
or maybe they're friends and they're just playfully, you know, joking around. But you, you state something that's the opposite uh, to um, uh, make make a point. And so you find that in scripture, especially in Revelation, you'll find uh, texts, for example, sometimes about the Messiah that'll be applied to the Antichrist to mock the Antichrist because he's really not like Christ. You might remember chapter three, even of the or chapter 13, who is like the beast? What is that call up? Who is like Yahweh in Exodus 15? So the, you have these mocking statements that are the opposite use the opposite of, of, of their original intention. So yeah, you have a lot of opposite use of scripture. We might call it an antithetical use of scripture. I, 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 I like better an ironic use of scripture. This is an ironic use of Deuteronomy. Thank goodness Jesus took the penalty of the worst because we're among the worst. Thank the Lord that he did that for us. So the caution should be exercised in labeling Old Testament uses then as uh, merely as contextual or non-contextual, since there may be more precise ways to state some of these uses. So there are degrees of contextual awareness and different kinds of contextual perspectives. Um, now, Roman numeral three. So we've looked at allusions, and that is sometimes used as an objection, the final objection to uh, contextual use. We looked at Dodd briefly. Um, now we're going to look at the distinctive presuppositions of the New Testament writers. The distinctive presuppositions of the New Testament writers. Now before we do that, um, let me just ask you, any questions so far on, on anything that we've talked about this morning? Because this really is a, a major shift now, even though it's still part of it. This lecture is Roman numeral three because these distinctive presuppositions I'm going to relate to God's work. I think they help us understand God's work more. Yes, sir. Um, I was curious with, um, especially with allusions, um, how to understand the. So, and would it be right to think that many allusions we can just attribute, or is it kind of with just the Hebrew and white? Thank you. Both. Book of Hebrews is almost exclusively the Septuagint. Revelation is Hebrew, Septuagint, Aramaic Targum, and uh, portions uh, of the Septuagint that have nothing to do with the Hebrew text. In other words, most of the time, the Septuagint is translated into Hebrew, right? Sometimes, as in the book of Daniel, you'll have two pages, maybe three pages of, of material that's added it's not found in the Hebrew text at all, or the Aramaic. In the case of them. So, um, so you, you, there are a lot of sources they can refer to. And yeah. No, some would say. Uh, in fact, I, I do know a scholar who has done a lot of work on Hebrews and thinks that, you know, for uh, the author of Hebrews, the Septuagint was the Bible. Well, and that. But she goes on and says, the inspired Bible. Now, I can agree it was the Bible. Um, but she, she wants to say that that author thought that was the original, okay? And um, that's, that's where I wouldn't agree. But I can say it was the Bible, just as I can, I can hold up the New American Standard 
So the Bible says this. I can hold up a New Living Translation that's quite paraphrastic, and I can say the Bible. So that doesn't mean that I'm saying that I think the New Living Translation, let us say, if I was holding it up, represented the original. Okay, so, so there are Bibles, and then there are Bibles. All right. So um, uh, very, very good question. So I, I don't think that because they quote the Greek Old Testament, that means they thought it was inspired only insofar as it corresponded to the Hebrew. Now, sometimes it doesn't correspond to the Hebrew. And I think what they're doing there is they're interpreting the, uh, the Hebrew text. Uh, or even the, the Greek Old Testament, they may not quote it the same way. They, they may paraphrase it. And I think they're trying to develop, pull out meaning from the text when they do that. So I think they're inspired in doing, the, the apostolic writers are inspired in doing that. Okay. Any other, yes, sir. Can I, can I ask a, 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 an historical question? Um, most of these histories uh, are they sort of post-enlightenment. Everything I've been talking about in terms of challenges, yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Has it, has it, in fact, all of this has been um, late 20th and 21st century. Right. So that's my second question, that it's kind of been going downhill ever since enlightenment. And yeah. sort of gathering in speed, as it were. Yeah. So my position would be called pre-critical, right. pre-enlightenment. You know, I said, Beal is like the church fathers, you know, he just assumes that, you know, the Bible's inspired, and so forth and so on. So my position by non-evangelical would be called pre-critical. I'm not, you know, taking into consideration the uh, um, critical perspectives of the Enlightenment that have developed out of the Enlightenment. Exactly. But there obviously have been little pockets of resistance and pushback and and little victories here and little developments there. You know, you mentioned uh, publications and yeah. you know, people haven't just rolled over and accepted all of this stuff. No, no. In fact, I mentioned the, uh, well, Dodd certainly didn't, and he was no evangelical, okay? And um, we can go back earlier to uh, Gerhardus Voss, who taught at Princeton University. Uh, in, in, in fact, most of the professors there um, reacted very much to uh, those who would say the Old Testament was used non-contextually, though a lot of the challenges hadn't been formally stated. Uh, Princeton then went liberal, and so the most conservative professors left and started Westminster Theological Seminary. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot of the passages that the non-evangelicals would hold up as non-contextual uses of the Old Testament um, on those very passages, you may have three or four articles or, or a couple of books written to show indeed it is contextual. And, um, and I, I read some of the like Scott Haferman on uh, the use of Exodus 32 and 2 Corinthians 3 and the use of the veil there. That sound, that, that's a tough one, but he, he, he makes a wonderful uh, argument for how, in fact, Paul understands very much what's going on. And Exodus 32. And um, so, yeah, for, for some of these parade examples, we have very good articles and books uh, written showing another perspective. Uh, and I, I think, you know, of course, I'm, we're all biased. We all have presuppositions. Uh, but, but I think these are very, very good, good works.
Um, so I mentioned Rick Watts uh, work on second Isaiah second Exodus and Mark. Uh, uh, you know, beautifully showing how some of the passages that have traditionally been seen as Mark's misuse uh, were really seen as him understanding the Old Testament context. So no, uh, there, there's been no rollover here. Um, there's really a, a rich, a rich uh, amount of bibliography responding to the things we've been talking about. But it's, it's arisen since the 80s, okay? Yeah. In fact, old and the new really didn't flower as a major concentration until probably beginning in the 60s. So just the topic itself wasn't a major uh, feature of study until probably around 50, late 50s or 60s, and then it began to develop from there. Yeah. So, yeah. Is it necessary for all New Testament allusions of the Old Testament to be pompous allusions? Uh, my student, Chris Beaton, wrote uh, Echoes of Scripture in um, uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians, believes that there are what we call echoes, which I call possible allusions, uh, that, that are unconscious. Yeah. Yes. Um, so that, that's possible. And um, so, you know, then, you know, if Paul were around and said, Paul, did you intend that? He said, oh, yeah, I did. <laughs> Uh, or he said, well, you know what? I didn't, but wow, uh, I must have been influenced by that passage in some way or something like that, you know? Um, so I think that's probably the case. It's always possible that something is unconscious and, um, and has no relevance at all. That's always possible. Uh, and we're going to talk about uh, this afternoon on it tomorrow. Uh, the different ways that New Testament writers use the Old Testament. Now, one of the ways is really non-use, and that way is they're just immersed with Old Testament language, okay? And so sometimes what looks like an illusion could just be their immersion. And of course, I mean, they're part of a, like in Puritan culture in the 1600s, I mean, they, they were soaked with scripture and spoken scriptural terms, and so New, uh, New Testament writers spoke scripturally, and so sometimes it's hard to know. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Okay, uh, let's see, where are we? What are we supposed to stop here? At one, okay. Yes, sir. Oh, okay, just scratching your head. All right. Okay, let's look at the distinctive presuppositions of the apostles' exegetical method. And... Um, Uh, that's, that's in this lecture, since we've begun uh, this period, this is Roman numeral three, we talked about allusions, Roman numeral one, Roman numeral two is God, Roman numeral three is the distinctive presuppositions of the apostles' exegetical method. And so I asked the question, what were the presuppositions which inspired what God and others uh, uh, to believe was a unique, consistent, contextual approach to the Old Testament. Were there any presuppositions underlying uh, the New Testament writers' use of the Old Testament? Now, I think that there were, and I think it makes sense of Dodd's conclusion that New Testament writers did uh, uh, refer to the Old Testament in line to one degree or another with the meaning of the Old Testament. 
No, I, neither God nor, nor his, most of his followers have inquired deeply enough into the fundamental issue concerning the reason why the New Testament is different from Judaism in its contextual approach, though I, I don't see as much difference, but there's some. Um, so what were these presuppositions which inspired what Dodd and others uh, believed to be a unique, consistent contextual approach to the Old Testament? And, um, I think the answer which makes most sense of the data is that not only Jesus, but the apostles had an unparalleled redemptive historical perspective on the Old Testament that Judaism did not have. Um, and that perspective involved a framework of the following hermeneutical and theological presuppositions. And I'll start with two that I'm not going to put on the overhead, but the first presupposition, and these are basic, the first presupposition, uh, which Judaism did hold, was the Bible was inspired. Second presupposition, which some in Judaism held, but uh, most wouldn't because you have to believe in Jesus for it. The Holy Spirit was necessary to understand the gospel and what the New Testament writers were saying. The Holy Spirit was necessary to understand the gospel and what the New Testament writers were saying. Remember Paul? Paul says, uh, for to us God revealed these truths through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we've received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might know the things freely given to us by God. And then he continues on. Uh, so those are two basic presuppositions. But the one that I, uh, the ones I really want to look at are five. And the first one uh, is the assumption of corporate solidarity. The assumption of corporate solidarity. Now, by that, uh, I mean um, that in the Old Testament, fathers represented their family. So in uh, Joshua, when, when Nathan steals and he's found out, it's not just him who is stoned, but his family is stoned. So they're seen as, an, as a corporate hope taken with his family. So the actions of a father represent the family. And the punishment of the father comes to the family. So kings represent their people. David represented Israel. Remember when he did something bad? A plague king because of what the king did. But the people suffered. Um, and this helps us, of course, understand. And, and, and one of the, all of us probably are aware of this notion that uh, we are corporately represented by Adam. Romans 5. Uh, his actions were seen as our actions. Um, and so we, we are seen as being represented by his simple actions, and we get the punishment as well. He's seen to be our federal head. Okay. So that's a New Testament example, which Paul believed to be true in the Old Testament. So um, now there, there are a couple of books. Uh, in fact, this is an area you really ought to study because it's just shot through throughout the Old Testament. And then you're going to see 
going to see it more in the New Testament, and rightly so. For example, I'm just uh, now, uh, I just finished proofs of a book I'm writing. It'll come out in the spring. It's called Union with the Resurrected Christ. And in that book, I try to show places where Christ is seen as ascended, and he takes on a particular attribute. And in that same context, believers are seen as in union with the ascended Christ and taking on that same attribute themselves. Why? Because Christ represents them. They're in corporate union with him. So uh, in a context, Christ, Christ is essential and he's declared son of God and will be seen as sons of God in the same context. So um, but that's, that's part of really corporate headship, corporate representation. I'll give you a couple of books you really ought to look at. One is by H.W. Robinson. It's called Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. Uh, Philadelphia, it's a new publication date, it's 1964, it's a fortress press. But, uh, and in the back of that book is, is a wonderful bibliography on uh, a material on, on corporate solidarity. There's been a misunderstanding of, of this. Some refer to this as he does, as corporate personality. That's not the best way to refer to it. Uh, it, it comes from a social theory where in the tribes in the Pacific Islands, the chief was seen as the corporate head and the people would share his personality, his spirit. And um, it's been shown pretty clearly that that's not the concept of corporate representation, that uh, a person's uh, acts represent someone else and the reward or the punishment also then is dealt to those people so represented. So that is uh, um, uh, Robinson, Corporate Personality in Ancient Israel. Here's another one, it's by A.R. Johnson. A.R. Johnson, it's called The One and the Many in the Israelite Conception of God. A.R. Johnson, the one and the many in the Israelite conception of God. Very cheap book, you can buy that on Amazon. In fact, all this you can get on Amazon. Um, so that's the assumption of corporate solidarity or representation. And um, we, we can also speak of this as corporate identification, uh, corporate participation. Um, those terms are also valid as well, uh, being in union corporately. Secondly, second presupposition. So uh, this is an Old Testament presupposition, but as I said, I think it's new, and especially following from number one, Christ is viewed as representing the true Israel of the Old Testament and true Israel of the church in the New Testament. So, um, by the way, we could extend that to many things. Christ is viewed as 
the true son of God. We're adopted sons of God. He is the true last Adam. We are seen as participating in him as the last Adam. He was sanctified. What does that mean? He was set apart from the corruption of the old world bodily. And we're sanctified. Not just from the corruption of the old world when we're finally resurrected, but uh, we begin to be separated from that in this life and, and, of course, from sin. And that's a way in which Christ wasn't sanctified. Um, Christ was redeemed. We usually don't, we only think of ourselves as redeemed. First Corinthians chapter one says that Christ became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So he's not just our justification. He's not just our sanctification. He's our redemption. Well, how is that? He wasn't redeemed from sin. Well, the lutrao and apolutrosis a word group is used in uh, throughout the Old Testament, including the book of Exodus, for Israel being delivered from the bondage of Egypt. So this can be a word of deliverance. Jesus is delivered from death um, and corruption, and it's proper to speak of him in that way as redeemed, and thus us in him, we're redeemed. So th this is a really packed thing here, okay? Uh, we could unpack it by my book, actually. This is just Israel. He became escalated, glorified Israel at his ascension, and we become that when we identify with him. Yes? Is that what Paul is referring to when he says in, in Romans 1, verse 3, Paul, and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead? Yes. But, now, in that context, it doesn't call us sons of God. But in chapter 8, it does. And I think that text is organically related. I think he's developing 1-4. Okay? Yeah, it's beautiful. All right. So, uh, but you can see how corporate representation follows. We're represented by him as true Israel, but we're represented by him in many other ways. This is just one way. Um, it's a key way, as, as, you'll, as you'll see. Um, now, you could ask, well, wait a minute. Um, on this presupposition, what's the basis for it? Where in scripture does it say that Christ is true Israel? Um, I guess we heard the bell there. Uh, when we come back, what we're going to do is we're going to look at more of the presuppositions. But before we finish presupposition two, we're going to look at the scriptural basis for Christ being true Israel and believers being true Israel. Because in the United States, I don't know about here, there are probably pockets here, but in the United States, major theological seminaries like Dallas Theological Seminary or um, the Master's Seminary and others uh, are dispensational, which means that the church and Israel are separate. All right. And many who hold that view would say Jesus also was not true Israel. So we'll come back to that uh, after lunch.